You ever be in a position where you have learned something only to then forget about it or to forget it and need to learn it again? I found that to be really frustrating whether I am trying to master a video game level or whether I'm learning life lessons and even more painfully spiritual life lessons that God desires to teach me. This is what we see happening in our main character today. Uh, now, our main character from the book of First Samuel, I invite you to turn there with me now, First Samuel, uh, is David at this point in time. David, who eventually will become king. And what's interesting is that here, even David, known to be a man after God's own heart, he too needs to learn again the things that God has already taught him. And it is, we imagine, a bit painful as he learns again and then tries to apply yet again God's truth to his situations. What are these truths that David learns and applies to his life situations? Well, it's actually the same as last week, and frankly, the same as the last time I preached, as chapters 21 to 26 are actually really similar. They kind of come in one cohesive unit. And today we kind of land on the heart of those truths that tie together all of those chapters. What are those truths David learns and applies to his life situations? Let me repeat that again from last week. God's people are in his care. This is the main idea if you're taking notes. God's people are in his care as God's purposes will be fulfilled in his people. I'll repeat that again. God's people are in his care as God's purposes will be fulfilled for his people. So if you are like me, you know, at times we can be discouraged. Maybe some of you guys even right here right now are learning yet again this lesson that God has taught you before. Maybe you might be discouraged. I think here we can know that we are in good company because David himself is like that. As God himself is conforming his people to be more like him. So let's learn from David this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 25. I don't really have an outline apart from uh, that sort of big main point. So everything here just kind of comes right out of the text. And then towards the end, though, we'll have some specific things that we can learn from David's experience, and we'll get to that. So again, we're in the book of 1 Samuel, which records Israel's transition to living underneath a king. Israel becomes a monarchy around 1050 B.C., and that's when it takes place. Uh, Now, this, friends, is history, okay? And I know that not all of us like history, But I hope that you are into this history, Christian, and let me give you some reasons why. First, first, okay, if you're already kind of tempted to glaze, your eyes are already glazing over because you're going to learn history today. First, let me remind you that this history is history about how God has worked in history, right? We learn so much about who God is. We learn so much about what he desires. We learn about his faithfulness, his character, uh, so many different things that we can learn about God and his plan of salvation, even from this history. It is unfolding here as we look and read and study. The second thing, this history concerns the throne that God was building. Think of salvation history. God himself is building this throne, which ultimately points to the throne and the king, that is Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. So David is a forerunner of the great king, that is Jesus Christ. Thirdly, We have the opportunity to learn for ourselves what David himself is learning. What is he learning once again? Well, what is he reminded of? What are those truths that God's people are in his care? 
as God's purposes are going to be fulfilled in his people. So those are just three things that we can be learning. We can learn about a whole lot of things, but those are the top three that I thought of here. This is a crucial passage today in the book of 1 Samuel and in David's life. And it discusses some crucial events that happen in the life of David as he meets a gal named Abigail, who is strong. She is an encouraging woman. And he eventually, by the end of the, cha- end of the chapter, takes her to be his wife, not only gaining for himself a wise counselor, but also strengthening his ties to the tribe of Judah, from which the line of Israel's ultimate king will come from. The chapter has some amazing dialogue between the two of them as she helps him learn again that he is in the care of the Lord. Let's look now and see and see what David exactly is learning. Those main points there, he's in the care of the Lord. That is exactly what David needs to learn because his life is difficult. You guys remember this? He is already at this point on the run from chapters 21 to even now. You know, we know that his life was in danger. He had no men, no soldiers, no brotherhood at one point in time. Now, certainly he gained some along the way, but at one point in time, he had no men. He had no weapons, no protection, no food. And to make matters worse, if you look there at verse 1 of chapter 25, verse 1 of chapter 25, we see there that Samuel, the priest, dies. Now, we know that this was significant as Samuel was, in fact, known for his godliness. He was a godly man in godless times. Now, imagine the significance then for David. He was persecuted by these godless men, and in the midst of it, who was his help? It was Samuel. But yet he dies. Samuel, the priest of God, a godly man in godless times, David's help, he dies. So, friends, if you know what it's like to have a mentor die, an older sister, an older brother, father, mother, grandfather, mentor, etc., and, you know, you rely on them so much for, for help, for strength, for courage, encouragement, and then that person dies, you know maybe what it's like for David, at least a little bit. It was a trying time in David's life, once again, on the run from King Saul, the evil, godless king of Israel, I think. His mentor dies, and add to this, he and his men are in need of food. That's the background to the passage of 1 Samuel chapter 25. If you look there, as things are starting off very clearly on rocky ground, if you look there at the end of verse 1, the end of verse 1, he goes into the wilderness of Paran. This is in Judah, part of Israel. And then the narrator, so if you just scan the text here, walk along with me, the narrator tells us that there was a very wealthy man there with lots of livestock, lots of servants, stuff like that. And then verse 3, and the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. So right there, we think this is good news, right? David and all of his men here, at least 600 men, are in need of food. We know this as as we're going to see a little bit later. And we think maybe Abigail and Nabal, Nabal and Abigail and his family will be a supporter of David. We know David is a man after God's own heart. We hope that Nabal and his wife will help. But look what we are told about them. The woman, Abigail, was discerning and beautiful, but... The man was harsh and badly behaved, or another way of translating this is evil in his dealings. This is an evil man. The narrator tells us, David doesn't know yet, but the narrator tells us that this man is evil. That's tension, right? 
David and his men are in need of food, but we know Nabal is an evil man. David doesn't know yet. We know, so let's go ahead and see how this pans out. Look there in verse 5. David sends his men to go greet Nabal on his behalf. He sends this message. He says he wants his men to send him, uh, Nabal, peace, the very peace of God on behalf of God. And so David here is just bringing this man peace. David also wants Nabal to know that he and his men were protecting Nabal's workers and his livestock, right? As they were walking along, as his men were taking care of all of his animals, uh, David was protecting them, protecting them from raiders and thieves. One of their own describes uh, what David did. Look at verse 15. Just go ahead and skip over down there. This is how one of uh, Nabal's men describes David's help and protection. The men were very good to us, that is David and his men. We suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. Why is that? Because they were protecting uh, these people. They were a wall. David and his men were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. You, you get the sense that David is a messenger of God protecting these people, these people of Israel, right? Like God himself, by night and by day, protecting, shielding, giving himself, all while, while David is on the run. I mean, I mean, if you look at that, right, he's bringing the peace of God to Nabal and his family. He's letting them know that David has been protecting him this whole time. So we have every reason to think that David is a very caring man here. Of course, David himself has a background of being a shepherd boy. He knows exactly what it's like to fight off the lions and the bears for the sake of the sheep. He's really just trying to protect this man. Then in verse 8, look there, we get David's ask. He says there, through his men, Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and your son David. David's even very deferential right there to Nabal, right? He's talking about your son. And then they sort of just give this message and then they wait. We as readers, on one hand, expect Nabal to help him out, right? if we didn't know what the narrator told us about him. But here, his men ask Nabal in the name of David. It's really likely that Nabal knew who this David was. We see that Abigail knew who he was. I mean, David was already uh, a legend on the battlefield, right, as the, the, the giant slayer. News about him probably spread throughout Israel as, uh, you know, King Saul is afraid and his men are afraid to go up against the giant. But then here comes David, the shepherd boy. You can imagine that his name is spread around all of Israel. So we have every reason to think that we are going to get a favorable response as they deliver the news and then waited. But we know what Nabal is like. Verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Interesting, right? David says, please, you know, allow your son some food. And he says, who is this son? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? We imagine that uh, David was not expecting this response. The caring, thoughtful David is met with harshness and insult. Nabal's response is actually entirely fitting for the description of his character given us by the, by the narrator. Nabal is dismissive of David. He insinuates that David is, is guilty of some kind of insubordination against Saul and rebellion against Saul, which, if you remember in the last chapter, he refused, he repented of. He 
refused to take advantage of that situation to kill Saul. Maybe Nabal here is implying that David is running some kind of mafia-like protection racket, right? You know, David and his men come alongside every sort of needy sheep shearer, and he sort of protects them in order to extort their masters for money and food. Maybe that's what's going on here. Of course, we know that this is completely not the case. What's interesting is that with these insinuations of David, Nabal sounds a lot like Saul, doesn't he? In many ways, he's meant to be the Saul uh, representative, so to speak, in chapter 25. Saul thought David was planning to murder him, right? But that was, it was a complete opposite. Imagine how David might have heard this here and now in the previous chapter. Once again, David had every opportunity to take Saul's life in the cave, to make the road to the throne a whole lot easier. And David's man wanted David to kill Saul. Certainly, David was tempted for that brief moment in the cave, tempted to vengeance and violence, but he spares Saul's life because he knew that God did not want him to take the throne by violence. Even though he was initially tempted by this violence, David is the one who goes on and does what to his men? He's the one who restrains his men from killing Saul. So in the face of Nabal's insult and selfishness, I mean, if you look there, you see the selfishness of verse 11, all the my, my, my. We would expect David, right, to exhibit, the man after God's own heart, to exhibit this type of restraint towards Nabal that he just exhibited towards Saul, where he trusted God's timing. He exercised patience. He endured with all of the evil. He returned good even in the face of evil. Well, let's look at David's response, right? In hearing the news, look there at verse 13 or verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword and about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. They're going out to kill Nabal. The story changes incredibly fast. We go from the men speaking to him in the quiet of the desert to hearing all of a sudden the clashing and clanging of the strapping themselves with swords. David is clearly insulted, and we know that he takes, issue, he takes this as an insult, right? We are to understand this, that this is in fact an insult and evil done to him, as verse 39 makes clear. If you go ahead and look there, We're going to get to a fuller explanation here. Uh, This is David here. He's talking and recounting the event there. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his head. So clearly David understands what he's doing to be evil. That is, as Nabal's insulting him, doing him evil. Nabal himself, remember, is an evil, godless man. So now uh, David wants some blood. And we see the thoughts that he has about this whole situation. Look there in verse 21. Uh, Now, David had said, he's probably commenting here, the narrator's commenting about what David did say when he heard the news. Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. But friends, no matter how off base or how harsh and badly behaved Nabal is here, it certainly is not worth bloodshed. 
It's interesting, too, that Nabal is not the only one like Saul, but David is, too. Saul is clearly given to violence, and David is ready for it as well. And he is ready to return, in fact, evil for evil, which we know, according to God, is sin, as God encourages us to return good for evil, even. In the last chapter, remember David, though he was indeed tempted to violence, it was he who eventually came to his own you know, godly conviction by the Spirit, and he restrained his men from vengeance and violence. But here in chapter 25, David's the one who needs restraining. In language of James chapter 1, it is the desires of David's own heart. If you guys remember that language, it's those desires that give birth to sin. And then when sin gives birth or, or uh, when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And so that is what David is wanting to commit. And he's almost going to bring about death in his own life if he was to reject God and God's ways. David wants to take matters into his own hands and to spill some blood. Now, of course, as readers, right, we don't want him to. We know what's at stake is God is building the throne so that his people would have a leader, someone who can, in fact, lead them and lead them in godly ways. We want him to stop. We don't want him to be like Saul, who doesn't trust in the Lord, but instead takes on matters into his own hands, who instead decides to go after violence. Now, there are many of us who understand David's instinct. Do you, do you struggle with anger, violence, vengeance, bitterness? Friends, if so, you understand this instinct, whether you've ever strapped yourselves with nines or swords. Some of us, if we are given over to anger, you know what this is like. Now, certainly maybe not so much as your next-door neighbor, as in your, the person next to your own pews, but somewhere in all of our hearts there is anger. And what do we do? If someone threatens us or your family, you might be tempted to get strapped with swords of vengeance. Literally so. But aren't we also tempted in the same way when we hold grudges, when we don't forgive, when we are bitter towards others? Think of when somebody badmouths you. Maybe we want to use our own tongues as swords, metaphorical swords, to cut the other person down, whether to their face or to other people behind their backs. We take out our own revenge. Or maybe we might just simply lash out, like if some of us might be known for lashing out to others. Or yelling, getting angry at other people. Friends, if that's ever been you, then you understand David. You understand what it's like to take care of the situation on your own, and you can't let it go. You can't let it go because you think in your mind, something needs to be done. Vindication needs to, be, needs to happen, and now. It's almost like, you know, let's say somebody is gossiping about us, saying something that's not true, right? They launch out a truth claim. You know, almost like it's a clay pigeon that needs to be shot down. They launch it out, and we just can't stand it. We need to make sure that thing comes down at our timing, and no one ever sees it or hears it or believes it. Because what is at stake is our lies or our own vindication of our own supposed righteousness. We so feel so compelled in those moments to do something immediately. And we stop at, sometimes we stop at nothing to erase it. This is why we get angry in certain circumstances. This is why we as sinners want to shut people up. 
whether by yelling over the other person, whether we are physically violent towards someone, God forbid, or whether we are just quietly giving someone the silent treatment as we might roll over coldly on our side of the bed. Friends, you realize that that is sin? All of it is sin. If you're visiting and maybe you're exploring Christianity, you know, the Bible teaches that murder is certainly a sin, right? Running a sword through a human being is sin. But did you know that hatred is as well? The hatred in your heart that no one can necessarily see. You don't have to curse people out to be guilty of this sin of hatred. You don't need to kill people to be guilty of the sin of murder. Jesus says, look, if you murder in your heart, you have a thought of hatred in your heart, you're guilty the same. If you hate in your heart, you are guilty of sinning against others and God himself. The reason being is because God created his people to love him and love other people. You care about him and the flourishing of all life under him. But in hating, you think about the nature of hating, right? In hating and being sinfully angry, you say, I don't want to follow God's ways. And instead, I'm going to murder in my heart. That is better than God's design and God's ways, right? You're just sort of removing God off of his throne and putting ourselves there instead. You realize, friends, that this is all of us? Christian, non-Christian, this is all of us. We are all guilty of sin in our hearts, whether it is a desire to covet, a desire to steal, a desire to murder, hate, to be jealous, to want our own glory over God's, to shade the truth. We're guilty, all of us, of sin. We have all rebelled and earned for ourselves, according to God's word, just punishment. So we're saying, friends, that all of us here can identify. I'm sure you can talk to anybody you're sitting around with, and they'll tell you how they sin. We can all identify with David at some level. And we talk about the solutions to this problem a little bit later. But just to be clear, the Bible says that all people are sinners, and David is too. This is, we're, just getting, we're just getting into his sin. We're going to see this a whole lot more. But David here, he wants to run Nabal through with a sword. And we as readers think, you know, no, we want David to stop. And let's see what happens next. Look there in verse 14. Verse 14. Uh, One of Nabal's servants goes and tells Nabal's wife, Abigail, and reports to Nabal, just go ahead and scan the passage there, Nabal railed against David's men, right? The servant knows this is wrong. Nabal railed against David's men, even though they were there in verse 5, very good to us. We suffered no harm and they protected us as we went with them. Servant continues there in verse 17. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. You can also translate that word worthless as evil. So this servant knows Nabal's character, that he is harsh and evil in his dealings. He is incorrigible. Nobody can change his mind here. He can't be spoken to. He can't be reasoned with. Why? Well, because he is a fool. And so the, 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 the servant goes to Abigail, of all people, saying, intercede, we've got to figure out something because we're going to get killed here. And look who springs into action. Look there in verse 18. Then Abigail made haste. And what does she do? Look there in the passage. She brings basically all this food that, you know, David didn't necessarily ask for, but, you know, she's bringing out you know, hundreds of loaves of bread and all this stuff. And as Abigail uh, goes to meet David, look there in 18 to 20, wow, we really see her wisdom 
her godliness, her boldness and character as she intercedes for her household and holds out godly wisdom for David. Look there at 23 to 27. What happens, right? They, they meet, they're on the road. David and his men, imagine this, okay? Imagine this. On the road to kill Nabal and his family. And Abigail comes along, you know, this, this woman out of nowhere and stops him in the middle of the road and intercedes for, his, for her people. Look there, 23 to 27. When Abigail saw David, saw David, she hurried and got down from her donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord, uh, from here on out, if you see my Lord in regular letters, like not capitalized, she's talking about David, just to be clear. Uh, She's being respectful to David, who is in authority in some ways over her. Let not my Lord, that is David, regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name. And folly is with him. Stop right there. Did you look down at your footnote? You'll see there. Nabal means fool. Nabal's mom probably didn't name him fool. Uh, It's probably a play on his real name. So somewhere along you can imagine that the fool gets named the fool. Literally, that's probably what happened there. she, She says to him, Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. You see what she says there in verse 24, just to explain this. In a very moving, in very moving fashion, she basically says, "Look, don't don't pay attention to the fool, pay attention to me." Nabal, my husband, is a, is a foolish man. Again, think wicked man, an evil man. He is known to be evil in his dealings. And in the Bible, in the Book of Psalms, it speaks about how the fool says there is no God. This man is an opposer of God. Abigail here, here, she is working to calm David down. Helping David not answer the fool with his same foolishness. Not to return evil for evil. So she says, I, your servant, didn't see the young men that you brought, that you sent. The implication is, look, if I saw, if I saw them, I would have sided with you and your kindness and your righteousness. Verse 26, now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul is, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving from, with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil be as Nabal. Her response is masterful. By saying, right, as the Lord lives, what is she doing to David, who so clearly is tempted to act on evil? She's reminding him, right, that he's accountable to the Lord, shoves him back, so to speak, with this word, to remember that there is a God who is over them all. She says, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, she's like stopping him right in his tracks, Right here, right now, my Lord, David, the one who is going to be king, right now the Lord is restraining you, has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand or taking matters into your own hand and acting on evil. Now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. This is skillful. We see what she's doing here. 
She's reminding David of the consequences. There's a teacher in this room who is only allowed to not tell the kids what they are to do, but she is strongly encouraged to only tell the kids to consider, consider wisdom, just stop, consider. Now, while I think certainly more needs to be done in a teaching situation than simply say consider, I'm not agreeing with that philosophy, uh, considering here is really important, isn't it? She's helping David enraged, right? David who is enraged to consider the consequences of unrestrained anger and vengeance and blood guilt. That's a truth claim, right? In terms of a truth claim that can go out into the air that Nabal has put out there, David is a scoundrel. He just wants to extort people of money, maybe. That's what he's saying. She's saying, if you act on this, the truth is you will be guilty of murder, of blood guilt. That's what Abigail reminds him of. The implication is, look, if you trust God, if you listen to God, then you can just simply let your enemies. You just simply let them exist. Your enemies will be like Nabal the fool who rejects God. People will know who they are, and you could just let them, and God will vindicate his name. For a moment of application here to gals, friends, if you want an example of a godly woman, here it is. And gals, if you, if you are looking for an excuse to call your husband worthless, that's not what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Cannot use this passage that way. Again, think evil, godless, wicked man. We see what Abigail does right here in this intersection as she stops David in his tracks. She is wise. She holds out godly wisdom, right? And, and she's known for her wisdom as this servant right, of Nabal goes to her and says, will you intercede and do something? She's wise. Not only that, though, but she takes initiative. She actually has a plan. Not only that, though, but she intercedes for her whole household, even Nabal. She's not advocating for his slaughter. She intercedes not only for herself or Nabal, but her whole household. She calls out folly when she sees it, not only in her husband, but also in David with great tact, mind you. She holds out, right? She takes, she's actually bold in holding out wisdom to this man that she doesn't really know. She points out sin and its consequences, getting this man enraged in his anger to consider. She does all this to the man who is in authority over her to some degree. And she does all this with great tact, great skill. And she does it all because she sides with the Lord. Gals, you know, we as a church are not ashamed to talk about Scripture. We're not ashamed to talk about manhood and womanhood in the home and in the church. And I'm sure you know, just as we had a, a, a wedding recently, you know, we talk about how husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, which certainly doesn't mean, uh, you know, if your husband wants to lead you into sin, that that's something you should do. We're not talking about that. Um, we're talking about submission, uh, generally speaking. So we speak about things very clearly when it comes to being a wife. And I'm sure many of you guys are thinking about, you know, you want to be a wife one day. 
Friends I, hope, uh, friends, I hope you see that as you think about that goal, right, you know that you are to submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ, and you're trying to figure out godly womanhood in general. I pray that you would also remember all of these characters, characteristics are to inform womanhood. They are not contradictory here. Everything that Abigail does is not contradictory, I think, to biblical femininity. I would say that godly womanhood includes being and doing all of these things that Abigail is and does here. So, friends, if for whatever reason you think Christian women ought to be weak, and like that's your place in marriage, or if you think that Christian women and wives ought to be passive in the church, or that they somehow should just be on the sideline and have no real, uh, no real opportunity to o- offer input That should not be the case. That is not Abigail. That is not Esther in Scripture. That is not the holy women of the past in the book of 1 Peter. Abigail here is strong. She is bold. She is wise. And as David meets her on this road, she instructs David because she's willing to take the side of God. I know some of you guys might actually be thinking, I've heard some conversations, so what is the place of uh, woman in, in, in Christianity. Isn't that amazing here? There is a huge place for a woman here in God's people before the very king. Actually, I would just say this is just regular Christianity. Whether it be a man who was going to do this, I'd say, great, praise God. But here you see a woman doing this. And for that, we can say, praise God. Taking the side of God is what is required if you are to be a woman like Abigail. You side with the Lord more than your husband or any man. You desire the praise of God more than you desire the praise of your husband or anyone else. You glory in God more than you crave the glory of your husband or anyone else. Your husband, after all, is just another sinner in need of help, in need of being restrained. And you can be, along with every member here, you can be the main agent of sanctification in his life, along with the local church. So, sisters, if you have trouble being and doing what Abigail is and does here in general, let me encourage you to think about why. And even if, you're, even if uh, you, know, you know you don't want to get married and you're just a regular church member, all of this applies. If you're a man, this applies as well. But, but sisters, why is it that you might have trouble being and doing what Abigail is and does here. Could it mean, for you wives in particular, that you desire his praise more than God's? If you never hold out clear, godly wisdom to him that he needs and that you know he needs. Is his glory worth more than God's? Or perhaps you think there is more security with this man whose life is but a breath, than with God, who is your eternal creator. Think, let me encourage you to think about those things. Men, husbands, <clears throat> we are all Nabels insofar as we do not encourage these things in our wives and the gals here at First Baptist Church in general. I encourage you to think about whether you even foster and how you foster and encourage Abigail's godliness exhibited here in your wife, in your children, women in general, <clears throat> Do you encourage her initiatives towards godliness? 
and her encouragements of your own godliness, even if it means that it comes at a rebuke? Do you encourage that at all? Or do you think that there is no place for Abigail's boldness, boldness here? Do you encourage her care for the flourishing of life, especially in your own household, as she cares for children, cares for you, cares for guests, cares for other people in the church? Or when she desires the care of the flourishing of life, that's more of a tax for you. That's more inconvenient as she wants to spend your money on other people or or give food to other people that you could have eaten and on and on and on. Give offerings to the church that you could use for yourself. Friends, how do you encourage her to call you out on your own sin and folly? even when you don't want to hear it. Have you even had those conversations with you know, the people in your household, your wife? <clears throat> How do you encourage her to live before the eyes of the Lord, finally, and not your own? Husbands, consider the consequences of not doing this. Let me encourage you, your homework here, to ask your wives for their assessment of you. Okay? Here's the homework. Don't be Nabal. Encourage your wives and ask them for their assessment of you. Ask for her wisdom on whether or not you encourage godly wisdom in your home. And if she gives you a bad report, right, it's simple. All you have to do is just repent where you need to. If if she gives you a good report, along with some of the negative, which I'm sure is all of us, then you can rejoice seeing God's grace. And then you can simply think of a way forward, maybe Uh, even today, this very afternoon. I pray that we as husbands would desire to see our wives always siding with God and living first and foremost in ways that please God the Father more than ourselves. In fact, we need our wives to do this because we are in need of godly wisdom and perspective and truth so that we might honor God with our lives. In terms of Abigail's words, they get better. They get better verses 28 to 31, and our understanding of God really comes to the fore right here in these verses, okay? So let's see what she says here in 28 to 31. 28 to 31, she goes on, please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will, continue, will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. These words are powerful, powerful words. There's so much truth packed in here to what Abigail says. And what is really cool is that the truths she speaks of here are the foundational truths that are in fact woven throughout 21, chapters 21 to 26. David here is learning those very truths that Abigail speaks here. What does David learn as he is on the run from Saul? Last week's main point, God's people are in his care. As God's purposes will be fulfilled for them. That's what he's learning here again. And we're going to break this down, okay? We're going to break this down. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. 
David learns again he is in the care of God. He learns again he is in the care of God. Though hunted by Saul and his men, hungry and on the run, insulted by fools, need he worry about himself, his family line, or getting on the throne? The answer is clearly no. Why is that? I mean, what does Abigail say there in verse 28? You go ahead and look there. Because the Lord, the Lord, God of Israel, Yahweh over all, and God who is with us will certainly make my Lord a sure house. God's got his, God has got him covered. Abigail reminds him, right, that his cause is, is bound up in the Lord's cause because, God, because David is God's anointed. You see, there the causes are the same because God has determined that David is his anointed. What does this mean? Look there, 29, very practically. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, what should David think about fighting for his life? Anxiety, stress, worry. The answer there, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living. Why? Because they and you, David, are in the care of the Lord. What are some examples? Spears thrown at your head. You are in the care of the Lord. Without food for energy or weapons for protection, you are in the care of the Lord. Going down to the king of the Philistines there, where you've got to feel the need to, to make yourself look like a crazy man to escape, there you are in the care of the Lord. Needing to find a safe place for his parents to hide, there too you are in the care of the Lord. Hearing that the city of Nob was decimated because Saul wants to kill you, in the care of the Lord. Escaping from the Philistines, having to run away from Saul again, whether in Keilah or on the mountain, you remember that exchange there? Bowing down before Saul and his 3,000 men, pleading with him, and then now having evil done to him by Nabal, all of it in the care of the Lord. I wonder for you, if you feel like these situations are mounting up against you, and you yourself are feeling the need to take matters into your own hand. That's what it means when he says, work salvation for yourself. If you feel that your situation, these issues are mounting up where you feel the need to take matters into your own hand, do you know that you are in the care of the Lord, Christian? Maybe somebody has concluded something about you that is not true. Maybe somebody is out to get you for no reason other than you follow Jesus Christ. Maybe you feel like your husband has abandoned you for whatever reason. Your parents are out to get you. You realize that because, friends, Christians, you are in Christ, your cause, as you live according to God's word, is Christ's cause. Which means, right, what does it mean? He has your back. And so your life is, what does he say here? Bound up in the bundle of the living. As you are in the Lord's care. What more evidence do we need as Christians than to look to Christ and all that God has done for you and his church to know that once again. All that he has done for you in order to bind you with a bundle of the living as he takes you and unites you to himself. You see, all of God's sovereign providence, his love, his grace and mercy found right there in Jesus Christ, right here in this moment as you feel like all those situations are mounting up against you. Right? You see 
just how far he goes to bind you with the bundle of the living. We are the sinners who deserve just punishment in hell even. We were the ones who had rebelled against God where we would be forever judged of our sin apart from God's grace. But nevertheless, God saves us. He sends his eternal son to make sure you, Christian, experience eternal life in Christ even though we deserve eternal damnation by Christ. We see this in his incarnation as he goes across the universe, takes on flesh. We see this in his life living righteously for you so that you would have his righteousness. We see this in his suffering as he hung on the cross and died and as he let sinners crucify him to the cross. We see this in his substitutionary death where we should have bore the full weight of God's wrath, but instead God poured it out on his son. We see this in his resurrection where we should have remained eternally dead, but God, by the power of the Spirit, raised him to new life and you to new life as well. We see this in his intercession for you even right now. Sinner, just certainly. So we are sinners, but just at the same time. And he intercedes for you right now. And now he provides for you his body that is his church so that you would be encouraged in your faith, bound up in the bundle of the living. If you're visiting with us and know yourself to be exploring Christianity, this is why we love God. This is why even in dark times and difficult times, at the end of the day, according to his word, we are never without hope because we are bound up in the bundle of the living. We are in the care of the Lord. And so even when trials come, as we sang about earlier, we can still trust in Jesus Christ. We know the love of God because he's died on the cross for our sins when we deserved eternal damnation. Let me encourage you, friends, if you, are, if you find yourself mount, uh, these accusations mounting up against you, let's say that they are unjust, there is one accusation that is entirely just that God has against you, and that is that you are a sinner and you stand before him, the righteous one, and deserve condemnation. The Bible says, but God is loving. And so he gives us Jesus so that we would be saved, that we would know forgiveness of sins, eternal life with God, adoption into his family, security even as God is our father. So if you are on the metaphorical road given over to sin, out for blood, ready to vindicate yourself as you silence your accusers, whether with your tongue or your guns, whether to kill them or show them how stupid they are maybe, or just to be hateful in your heart, you know you show that you don't need the Lord's care, right? You say, I need my own bigger guns for this one. We're friends with, all, with the all-powerful God who sends his son to save us and with the God who raises the dead and with God who promises to vindicate his own people's names as he vindicates his own, you are in the best hands. Let me encourage you to repent of your sins and trust in God and you, in fact, will be saved. And friends, you can trust him. Remember in the book of Revelation where he understands and hears and sees the blood of the martyrs and hears their voices of the people killed for the sake of his own name. What does he do? He acts and he vindicates. And so we can trust him. What does Abigail tell David regarding his enemies? She says, they're the life of your enemies. God shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Isn't that fascinating? What what must have David been thinking there? He wants to commit violence in a bad way. We're not talking about war here. 
but he must have been thinking maybe of the sling that he carried, the stones that he had, the giant that he struck down all by God's grace because God was the one who was with him. She says, as easily as you struck down Goliath, God will take care of your enemies with infinite ease. Of course, you know, this was to encourage David to trust. We know this trust is hard. It was hard for David, a man after God's own heart, so it is hard for us. Just as David learned through trial and temptation, certainly we do as well. Through trials, David learns again he can trust God to fulfill his purposes. Second thing, David learns again he can trust God to fulfill his purposes. Right there on that road, he's faced with the decision to trust. They're strapped for that skirmish. Abigail confronts him on the road gets him to lay down his sword of vengeance and violence and entrust himself to God. This is implied there in 30 and 31. Go ahead and look there. The present blessings, right? She's she's saying, look at the present blessings, the good blessings of entrusting yourself to the Lord, David. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, king over Israel, leader, then my Lord shall have no cause of grief, none whatsoever, no pangs of conscience, no haunting conscience, For having what? Shed blood without cause. Or for my Lord having worked salvation unto himself based on self-reliance, independence apart from God. It's like she says to David, look, when you trust that God has you in his hands and that he is faithful to everything he has promised, to his own eternal promises, then you can act rightly that you would be holy and pleasing to him. Between you and your Lord, you would have no grief. No haunting conscience, no labels of being a murderer, no, re- no regrets for returning evil for evil and taking matters into your own hands. That's what happens when you please God. Can you imagine, girls, just Abigail and her boldness right there? She calms down David the Goliath slayer all by her words of wisdom, according to God's wisdom. Incredible. What an encouragement for us as Christians. Friends, if you answer a fool by his own foolishness, you show just how foolish you are. Maybe you have done this. Maybe you did this last night and you regret it. Now you deal with the consequences of your own sin. But if you entrust yourself to God in the midst of difficult circumstances, that he will in fact judge according to his timing, then what does God see in this moment, that moment? If you act on your foolishness, well, the world sees that you are what? Evil. You return evil for evil. The world sees that you are no different than anybody else. But if you trust in God, right, the world sees, God sees someone who is wise according to God's wisdom, slow to speak, quick to listen. Someone who does not return evil for evil, but good for evil. Someone who does righteousness according to Christ. Someone who loves, someone who's holy, all because of this Jesus Christ. And so we can return good for evil and walk in his ways and lead others, others to do the same. Now, let's be honest, right? Frankly, the world might see that. They might see that, but they might not. Nevertheless, we are called to live before God's eyes anyways, ultimately, at the end of the day. Third thing David learns. David also learns to accept godly wisdom. Look at 32 and 35. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. 
Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought to him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. Clearly, he sees her as a godsend. God sent you this day to meet me on the trail with all my men and swords to do violence. God sent you to meet me with your wisdom. And David, not being guilty of trying to force the hand of God, that's what he thanks her for. He thanks her for not for giving him this wisdom so that he would not be guilty of murder or taking things into his own hand. The result is that David entrusts himself to the Lord and his faithfulness. And you know how the story works out? You know how the story works out? Look at verse 36 to 38. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's, and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. And in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Not sure exactly how he died. Regardless, it is at the end of the day attributed to the Lord. David himself understands this. You look there at verse 39, right? When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, verse 39, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. How might you have felt to hear that this enemy, your enemy, died at the hand of God? If you are rejoicing, you might be more like Nabal than you realize. I imagine it must have been a little sobering to see the sovereign providence of God work that way. You know why? Because at the end of the day, there's only one thing that made David and Nabal to differ. Only one thing. It was not David's inherent righteousness. It was not his inherent morality as if he had any. What was it? You look there at verse 26. As Abigail, Abigail stops David in his tracks, what kept David from being like Nabal or being like Saul? It was the Lord. Verse 26, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. He goes on and he says there in our verses that we just read, 32, you look there, David thanks Abigail. What does he say? David says the same thing. It is the Lord who ultimately kept me or restrained me from hurting you. Abigail is a messenger of God there. David knows it was God and his sovereign providence that restrained him. That's what he says as well in verse 39. God has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. It's the same word there. He has restrained him. With God working to make David a sure house, David can trust and rejoice with humility that he is in the care of the Lord, all by God's sovereign grace to save and even here, his sovereign grace to restrain. I imagine that David, 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 his name is not David, his name is David. 
I imagine that David must have been convicted, knowing that in one episode of his life, he was the one restraining others, but here he was the one needing to be restrained by God. Perhaps he was thankful as well as God gave him opportunities to learn again what God had already taught him before. But even in all of the different events here, the ups and downs of his life, the ups and downs of our own lives, we see that God cares for his people. And here he grows us in our faith, which testifies to the very fact that God is exactly who he says he is, our God who saves and our God who refines us, conforms us more to the image of Jesus. And so, even in difficult times, we can trust him as our lives are bound up in the bundle of the living in Christ and we are in the Lord's care. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we recognize and confess that many times we doubt who you are. Even though you have given us so much history, so many different examples of how you work according to your faithfulness, all by your grace, how you fulfill all of your promises, how not a single one of your words will fall to the ground empty and powerless. But Lord, in the midst of our own situations, in the midst of our own doubt, Lord, we pray that where we disagree with who you are or insist you are someone who you are not, where we insist in our sin, in our doubt, in our weakness, that you are not all-powerful, not all-knowing, not all-wise, not all-loving and caring and faithful. Lord, we pray that you would rebuke us. We pray, Lord, that you would help expose our hearts to see what it is that our sinful hearts and desires are really after in that moment. And so we would learn to entrust all of those things and our very selves to yourself. Well, we know we do this with so many different things when our lives aren't working out the way we want it to, whether we don't have the material goods that we want, the comfort that we want, the status we desire, the friendships that we want, the intellect that we want, the power the perfection. Lord, we pray that you would help us see our sin. We thank you, God, for your grace and that you take time to expose these things in the midst of these trials so that we would be conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. Help us behold your face over and over again as we are conformed more to glory. Lord, we pray that we would not be afraid of you, but instead, just as you call us to, we would run to you, confessing our sin, needing help from the Father in heaven. God, we ask that we would know without a shadow of a doubt that, you, that we are secure in the blood of Jesus and in your great care. We thank you, God, for you as you have given us such a great exhibition of love in Jesus Christ. So much so that you die, that you send your eternal son to die on the cross for us and to be raised, showing your power over sin and death and telling us that there is no longer any payment to be made and to be had, instead an embrace by the Father. Help us know that you will, in fact, hold us fast. To the praise of your great name, we pray these things. Amen.